Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry for the delay. Welcome to uh, our Scholar in Residence program. We are very privileged to have Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein with us uh, for Shabbos. Those who were here last night or today had an enjoyable roller coaster ride, laughter, tears, but the powerful message of discovering who we really are and the love that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for us and the love we should have for ourselves was extremely enlightening and powerful in preparation for the Yemei Hadin. Tonight's topic... How laughter gets us through tough times. Without further ado, Rabbi Waiwai. Well, first of all, I'd just like to say, as I'm about to uh, um, disappear, that it's been an absolute joy being with you. I'd like to thank the sponsors. So uh, my dear friend who uh, introduced me and also put this thing together, and particularly for all of you who have uh, come along and suffered uh, through all of my sessions. Thank you very much. I wish you all a kasiva v'kasima toiva. I was <clears throat> a little while ago in South Africa, uh, do we have that South African lady here? No? Right. I'll do the translation. Anyway, so at the end of one of my sessions, they, were, they opened it up for questions, and a guy stuck up his hand and he said the following thing. He said, Rabba, Rabba. In South Africa, it's spelled R-A-B-B-A, Rabba. It seems to me that Judaism doesn't put too much emphasis on laughter and fun, except when it comes to Purim. Why is it? Did you get any of that? You with me? No, not enthusiastically. Good, good, good. I said to him, that's a very interesting question. What was the name of the first Jewish child? And he said, Abraham. I said, nope. Abraham was a ger. Abraham became Jewish. What was the name of the first Jewish child? And of course, at this point, he got it. Yitzchak. Yitzchak. Absolutely well done. And what does Yitzchok mean? It's laughter. I said, laughter is so fundamental and so important in Judaism, the first Jew was called laughter. That's how critical laughter is and was. I don't know if you've ever considered what it is exactly that makes us laugh. There is a well-known English comedian and having said that, I've forgotten his name. Uh, you may know him as Mr. Bean. Is that... Um, Rowan Atkinson, thank you very much. Now, like most extremely funny people that I know or have worked with in the media and BBC and so on and so forth, most very funny people are also highly intelligent. And Rowan Atkinson uh, happens to have a degree in electrical engineering, a master's degree from Cambridge University. So he's clearly very... A very uh, funny fellow, uh, and a clever one. But his, um, he also lectures on the topic of what it is that makes us laugh. So he splits humor into four categories. There's observational humor. Then there's slapstick. The old Max Sennett movies, you know, when the guy slips in the banana skin. I do not actually know why we laugh at that. After all, if we had the person slipping in the banana skin, we don't find it even remotely funny. 
Then he says there's incongruity. That is, I actually once did a poster for this year, and I was looking for incongruity. I did a Google search. If you could uh, picture this in your mind, it was a row of dogs. Also, it's different kinds of dogs, 10 in all. There was German Shepherds, and there were Collies, and there were Poodles, which I cannot take seriously as a dog anyway, all the curls. And, um, five in one side, five in the other, and sitting in the middle, try and picture this, was a cat. Right? And it's so incongruous, you just look at it, and you're just, it just looks funny. But the thing that normally makes us laugh is the unexpected. In fact, the bit of the joke that actually gets us giggling has a name. What's the name? The punchline. Interesting, it's called a punchline. Like a punch, boom, you don't see it coming. Boom, it hits you. It's the unexpected that normally makes us laugh. And if you've been blessed with a sense of humor, which the Rebellion gave me, it, it's, a, it's a wonderful gift. And it can get you out of some really tricky situations. Many years ago when I was living in Manchester in England, uh, there's a large shul there in Manchester, and it's called by the name The Shrubberies. Probably got some Hebrew name, I can't remember what it is, but everybody knows it as The Shrubberies. And they were, um, as they say, between rabbis. <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying that they fired the poor, the poor guy from before, and we're looking for some new sucker. Um, so they asked me if I wanted uh, to become the rabbi of the synagogue, thus proving that they at least had a sense of humor. Um, so I did that for a few years. It wasn't quite my cup of tea. And I said, no, it's not really for me. But they had a problem uh, because they had six consecutive bar mitzvahs coming up. And they didn't have a rabbi to address the bar mitzvah boy. Now, here's an interesting fact. I don't know if you know this, but 80 to 85% of Jews in, in the UK are Orthodox. Did you know that? Now, it doesn't mean to say they're as true as you, but the shul that they belong to is an Orthodox shul. The shul whose rules they don't keep is an Orthodox shul. So, uh, so most people, you know, are... This is quite a traditional shul. Old-fashioned shul with a woman's gallery. Got the picture, you know, these sort of things. Anyway, it's the sort of shul that if the rabbi doesn't address the bar mitzvah boy, he's not really bar mitzvah. So would I come and address the bar mitzvah boys? And I said, sure. So I turned up for my first Shabbos, and the, uh, the president of the synagogue was waiting outside for me, wearing his top hat, his stovepipe hat. Very English. I said, rabbi, let me escort you to the box. Now, if you've never been in the UK, that phrase that I just used may have confused you. You see, just like here, there is a rabbi's seat. I've not actually seen our Rav sitting in, but I'm sure he does sometimes. They've got the exact same thing in England. Usually a seat on one side and a seat on the other. It's just that the seat is encased in a wooden box, which opens out at the front or at the side. And I have to tell you, in all my travels all over the world, I think it's a uniquely English phenomenon. And I've never quite worried, worked out why it is that the English are so keen to put their rabbis in a wooden box. <laughs> After all, he's going to be in a wooden box soon enough. Why they try and speed up the process, I never understood. Anyway, so 
he led me to the front, and uh, I tried to squeeze in, basically squeeze into the rabbi's box. Uh, you see, if you've got a, a thinking mind, you will have already worked out that the box was clearly constructed for the dimensions of the original rabbi of the synagogue when it was built. And it was quite clear to me that this rabbi could, could have got a job uh, as an extra in the Lord of the Rings as a dwarf. Um, and anyway, so basically I squeezed myself in there. My, my knees were coming up to my, uh, to my chin. There's another shul in Manchester where the original rabbi was clearly an Og Melika Boshan. When I speak from there, it's like, hello. Um, anyway, so I sat there. There wasn't so many people turning up um, at that stage, maybe 50 or 60, and we davened. And then eventually, as it came towards the lining, when the bar mitzvah boy would be performing, you know, hundreds of people descended in the show, filling up the ladies' gallery and the men's. And the fellow, the president of the top hat, came up and said, eh, Rabbi, would you escort the Sefer Torah to the bima?" It's one of these beamers that you step up onto. And so I said, of course. So I <coughs> dislodged myself from the box, opened the front, and I went, you know, the sort of thing, you walk around saying, good Shabbos, good Shabbos, good Shabbos. Probably the previous rabbi did that, they hated him, he hated them, but never mind. Um, onto the beamer, back to the box. And then they come up and said to me, Rabbi, um, would you uh, uh, tell me your Hebrew name? We'd like to give you an aliyah. Yehuda Yonah ben Avraham. Fine, out of the box, onto the bima, back to the box. And then he came up and he said, Rabbi, would you say the prayer for the royal family and the state of Israel? I said, of course. And so, out of the bima, onto the box. About this stage, the shul is completely full up. And um, I had a problem because I wasn't sure how they did the prayer for the royal family. Uh, A special English it's called the United Synagogue is Orthodox, and it means an Orthodox grouping of synagogues in England. And they've got their own cedar, and they've got the prayer for the royal family. And the hazard of the shul is an old pal of mine, South African fellow called Bertie Sandler. So I whispered to him, Bertie, how do you say it? He said, just read precisely what's in the cedar. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do you say it? See, some people say the prayer in Hebrew. Some people say the prayer for the royal family in English, and some sneaky guys do it half English and half Hebrew. So I wasn't sure. I said, yeah, but how do you do it? Just read precisely what's in the Siddur. Okay? So they announced prayer for the royal family. A thousand people all stood up. And I turned to the prayer back in the days before they had a king. And I said, <clears throat> he who gives salvation unto princes, unto, uh, uh, unto kings and dominion unto princes, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. May bless our sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth. Aleha Shalom. Um, Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Oh, sorry. Ah, and the Queen Mother. She was still alive. Uh, the Queen Mother. But Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, the Queen's husband. But, uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales. Now, the problem was she was dead. She had died, Princess Diana had died tragically in that car crash, which you probably know about. But he told me to read precisely what was in the cedar. It wasn't my fault that they'd left her name in there and hadn't taken it out. Well, the reaction from the audience, or from the congregation, was actually really remarkable. Instead of being an explosion of laughter, there was an implosion of laughter. 
And it makes a very interesting sound when a thousand people go, hum, and so I try and hold it in. You see, because they didn't want to embarrass me, because first of all, they knew, oh, they were grateful to me for doing this, one. Two, they liked me. And three, they knew I didn't know what I was doing. So there was a noise like that. So I turned to my friend Bertie, who'd admise me, and I smiled at him. I, and he smiled back at me. <laughs> anyway, so I went back to the box, dying of embarrassment. And at this stage, frankly, had they nailed the box down, I would have been perfectly happy. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that was that. And then eventually they brought the Sea Tower back into the Ark. And then the president stood up to introduce me, which was silly because the whole community were friends of mine. I knew of them all anyway. And then he invited me to address the Bromitsu boy. And so I moved to the front. And uh, this lovely little boy, sweet little Bromitsu boy, stood up. And I said, before I address today's Bromitsu boy, I would just like to point out that for those of you who were listening carefully a few moments ago, you may have noticed a slight change to the normal wording for the prayer for the royal family. At that point, nobody could withstand the, the laughter, the explosion of laughter. And they laughed for ages, and I waited for total and complete silence. And then I said, I'd just like you to know that for some of us, she will live forever. So, <laughs> and at that point, I, you know, I, I was off the hook. So if you've got a sense of humor... It's a remarkable thing. And I remember the first time I was invited to lecture in Switzerland. And I'd always wanted to see Switzerland um, because I heard that they've got mountains there. Um, and being Scottish, I'm used to mountains. And I wanted to see what these second-class Swiss mountains look like. Um, and so I immediately said yes to the invitation. It was a Shabbaton for university students. And so I said yes. Um, somebody who was a cousin of the organizers in Zurich and uh, after I'd said yes, about two weeks later, I received a phone call. I picked up the phone, and the voice said, Hello, is this Rav Rubenstein? I said, yes. Hello, Rav Rubenstein. This is Mark, phoning from Zurich. I said, hello, Mark. Uh, hello, Rav Rubenstein. Um, now, they'd asked me um, to send uh, a video of me giving a shear, Right? So uh, I said, a bit, no, because I used to be the campus rabbi for the 14 universities in the northwest of England, and I was used to dealing with university students, I sent one of my shirim for university students, which is full of humor. You're dealing with students. And I also sent, uh, do, oh, do you remember, remember videotapes? Remember those things? And I also sent a little audio cassette of me giving a serious shear, because I can do that as well, if I'm, if I'm pushed. Um, and so that's what he was phoning me about. <laughs> Rav Rubenstein, uh, it's about the video you sent. I said, yes. Oh, uh, if you liked it very much. But when you come to Zurich, no humor, please. <laughs> <laughs> und, there was an und. Und, you mustn't become friendly with the students. You mustn't become friendly with the students. Because in German culture, a Herr Rabbiner is aloof. Und, Noch an unt. Do you know how much they're paying me? You don't get more than one unt when you pay me that amount of money. Anyway, so unt, uh, no Yiddish, please. Because to a German ear, Yiddish sounds a bit like somebody saying, it's wonderful to be in your country here in America. Where do I drive my taxi? Um, that sort of thing. Nothing wrong with the Jamaican accent, but it sounds a little bit funny. And apparently Yiddish sounds the same sort of thing to a German ear. Fine. Now, this is a problem. It's a problem because, first of all, I have a sense of humor. 
Second of all, I'm not an aloof sort of rabbi or sort of person. And third of all, I learned and gets a yeshiva for seven years in Yiddish. So Yiddish pops out a mall. That was a Yiddish joke there. Um, so how was I going to get through this? So, <laughs> so I'll tell you the truth. I, I shouldn't really say this, but, anyway. but did you ever see Star Trek? I'm talking the original Star Trek when Vulcans were Jewish. <laughs> so uh, I just pretended to be Mr. Spock for three or four days, you know. Logical, yes, yes. Uh, and that's how I managed to get through this. Um, students, the students were weird. They were all wearing Armani suits and dresses and skirts. University students. My university students looked as though they fell out of a trash can. But these guys, and they were taking notes. It was very intimidating. Uh, anyway, so that was that. The Froom ladies of Zurich, um, they uh, heard I was in town, and so they asked me if I would speak to them, address them on Sunday night. And they have an organization called the Algodas Frau Gruppen, which actually sounds like a division of the German army. Um, so, um, so, so I basically, I came into the hall, which is literally about the size of the, of the shul here, and there was all these ladies, about 600 ladies, there was the Alta Bobas sitting at the front, like this. <laughs> I, I had a mother-in-law like that. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and they're all sitting there, and I realized I'd made the biggest mistake that any speaker can possibly make. I'd forgotten to ask how long I should speak for. And I had this big group of swarm, and I was being serious now, but put them down. I said, Ein Schulde Kmir, excuse me, wie lang muss ich etwas reden? How long should I speak for? And a voice from the back of the hall answered in English with an American accent and said, That depends. Which I thought was very funny, right? And so did everybody else. They were laughing. In other words, if you're good, you can go on all night. If you're garbage, two minutes and go away. And they're all la- they were laughing. I spent four days with The Walking Dead. And here we have, here we have people who are laughing like that. And that's when I discovered that most of the wives in Zurich are not Swiss. No, they're normal human beings. <laughs> From countries like America and Canada and England, where they have a sense of humor. Um, but when I was researching one of my books, I wrote a book called The Little Book for Big Worries Dealing with Serious Illness, I came across a fact, um, a statistic, and uh, I hated myself for thinking this, but people who are seriously ill, I mean seriously ill, and who can laugh about their condition, have a 75% higher recovery rate than people who can't. Can you believe that? And I, it was a horrible thought, but it's a, I wonder to myself, what are the recovery rate, r- rates from illness like in Switzerland? <laughs> now, I'm being unfair. The Swiss actually do have a sense of humor. It's just it's very different to yours. If I say something funny and you laugh, you probably go, <laughs> in Switzerland, something funny should evoke no more than, <laughs> it's true. Anything more than <laughs> is considered rude, right? So I wondered how, how much does a... But if you've got a sense of humor, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, and as I say, it gets you out of unfortunate situations. And you know, there's nothing worse than when you don't laugh and when you can't get the joke. When I first moved to New York, somebody said to me, 
Uh, do you know there's a bridge in Queens called the Kalshishko Bridge? I said, pardon? You said there's a, I'm still getting used to the accent. Uh, there's a bridge in Queens called the Kalshishko Bridge. I said, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I said, yes, I know that. I, I've been over that. He said, do you know why there's a bridge in Queens called the Kalshishko Bridge? I said, no. He said, it was named after a famous Polish general. I said, really? He said, yeah. Um, he said, do you know why there's a bridge in Queens named after a famous Polish general? I said, no. He said, it was meant to be a tunnel. And everybody <laughs> said... <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And I'm going, huh? Because you see, where I come from, the stupid people are Irish. <laughs> Apparently, in New York, it's the Poles, right? So all, and if you don't get the joke, you feel like a complete and total idiot. So sense of humor is an absolutely wonderful thing, if you have one. And so much so that there's famous Gomorrah, and I'm, I'm sure everybody knows this Gomorrah. Uh, after, I'm going to read this, some of this Gomorrah to you, just to prove I'm a properly qualified rabbi. Um, and, uh, and you'll see that I, I, my opinion is that this, um, this Gomorrah is often quoted... Maybe some of you already know what I'm going to quote. And I think people stop too soon. So here's the Gomorrah anyway. So the Gomorrah talks about somebody called Reb Reuka. Um And who was Reb Reuka? It says, Reb Reuka was always found in a marketplace called Beit Lefet. Um, and when he was there, he used to uh, team up with his old buddy, Eliyahu Anovi, Elijah the prophet. Okay? So he said to him, is there anybody in this marketplace that's you know, a person who's going to heaven? What sort of thing do you get to do, or do you do, which guarantees you a place in heaven? Any ideas? What guarantees you a place in heaven? Sorry? Accurate weights and measures. Does it say a place in heaven? Maybe. Okay. Anything else? Sorry? Make people laugh. We'll come to that in a second. The answer is no. That's why I'm... Well, it's usually something like if you save a life. It's usually big stuff, right? If you save a life. <clears throat> so I have, I have a brother-in-law. He's a, he's a Rav. Um, sadly, he's a stroke. He's an old fellow now. But once, he had a pl- uh, an apartment in Natania. He liked to swim a lot. And there was three Sam girls who were in a boat that capsized. And he swam out and saved three lives. I mean, that's all on my boat. I think also if you make seven shaduchim, guaranteed a place in heaven. I've made 50. Um, so, <laughs> so he says, any place person going to heaven? And he said, he said, that guy over there. So he rushed up to the guy and he said, what do you do? Turns out the guy was blessed with one of those uh, uh, things that just uh, sometimes are crucial for Jews. He didn't look like a Jew. Blonde hair, blue eyes, something like that, just didn't look Jewish. The Romans had put him in charge of a prison. Now, in those days, the Romans commonly just grabbed a Jew, trumped up charges against him or her, stuck her in prison, and they just waited for a ransom to be paid to get the person out of prison. Um, obviously, if, God forbid, a woman was put in prison, by the time the ransom would be paid, the worst possible things could have happened to her. But they didn't know he was a Jew, and he made sure that no Jewish woman who was put in prison, nobody laid a finger on her. Ah, Olam Habo. I mean, you can understand. Olam Habo. But then the Gomorrah carries on, and the Gomorrah says, anybody else? They said, anybody else is going to, um, going to heaven? 
He says, those two guys over there, and some commentators say they were brothers, these guys are also Hanachtri, he runs over to them, they're also people who are going to heaven. Gabaihu, now we're coming to your thing. He runs over to them and said, and he said to them, what do you guys do? We're comedians. And that's usually when rabbis quote this Gemara, they stop there. You see, if you can make people laugh, you're going to have heaven in Judaism. Isn't Judaism a great idea? Isn't it a great religion? But that's rubbish. That's total nonsense. That's not what the Gemara says. The Gemara goes on to say, We find people who are depressed. Or, or We find two people who have fallen out and we use humor to, to heal the, the rift, to heal the breach. It doesn't say you go to heaven because you can crack jokes. Or you can say a funny story. It says you can get to heaven if you can make people laugh who are depressed. What causes depression? Well, I studied psychology um, at university for a while. Uh, did not enjoy it at all. Um, but there are various schools of, of psychology. And one school of psychology cites four critical factors that can cause a person to become, a de- uh, become depressed. Any ideas? What would cause a person to become depressed? Major loss. Hmm? Major loss. Of what? Family, loved ones. Family, good. So, if you have been, been bereaved of somebody, somebody you love, uh, a parent, um, a spouse, um, uh, God forbid a child, then obviously that's going to be a trigger for depression. Obviously, yeah. One. Any other, anything else? Inability to continue the lifestyle. That Very good. Uh, and in actual fact, is the, the, the example they give is poverty. You lose your job. So you could pay your mortgage, you could pay your rent, you could pay the lease in the car, and suddenly you can't. So that's another one. Health problems. Good, health problems, right. So somebody gets a catastrophic uh, diagnosis of, of, a, of a health problem, that can cause depression. Anything else? Well, in this model, the other one's a surprising one. Moving. Moving. Um... For example, I used to live in a leafy suburb in Manchester in England, and uh, we moved to Flatbush in Brooklyn. <laughs> and that's a real reason to be depressed. Um, so any of those four. Now, here's an astonishing thing. Uh, Rashi lived about 1096. He addresses this. You'll find this in Parshas Kokash. And the Jewish people are about... Now, of course, they've just lost Aaron, they've just lost Miriam, so they must be a bit, a bit down anyway. They're coming at last, after 40 years, to the, to the border of Israel. And the quick way through is through the land of Edom. And then at last, the 40-year sojourn is over. Listen to what it says. Uh, it says, um, Oh, And they came from Horahor, Derech Yamsuf, by the Yamsuf, to go round about er, der, uh, uh, the land of Edom, but tikzar nefesh ha'om baderach. And the tikzar nefesh ha'om, the soul of the people became tikzar. So what happened was, the quick way through was through Edom's land. But Edom came up with his army and said, oh no Jews, you come through my land, it's war. Moshe asks Hashem what to do, he says, don't start with them, go round the long way. So instead of going forward to Eretz Yisrael, they have to turn back towards Egypt, where they just come from, 40-year journey, and they're going back there. 
V'titzar nefesh ha'am baderech. How would you translate the word titzar? No, same as kitzur. How would you translate kitzur? Titzar, kitzur. Like kitzur shulchan aruch. Shorten, abbreviated, squished, depressed. Depressed, okay? So the people, the Jewish people, collectively got depressed. Listen to what Rashi says. Here's an incredible insight, psychological insight from a thousand years ago from Rashi. Rashi says the following thing. When something happens bad in your life and your mind, your das, is not broad enough to accept or understand what's happening to you or why it's happened to you. Or, and there's no place in your heart to accommodate the pain that you're going through, that's Kitzur Nefesh. That's Kitzur Nefesh. So apparently these two brothers, these two comedians, located people who were suffering that. Now, what did they do to make them view the world differently? What changed? So... Here's what Rashi says. What does it mean that they were beduchim, they were, they were comedians? Smechim mesamchim b'nei odom. They were jolly, and they made other people jolly. And then, Rebbeinu Gershom on the other side of the page, he said that they had the verbal dexterity to make people smile. But there's a problem here. Somebody has lost their home and moved to another country. They've lost their health. They've lost their wealth. Or... or what was the last one we made? Sorry? All oh, being, yeah, oh, they've been bereaved. They've lost a mother, a father, uh, a spouse, or a child, God forbid. What did these men do, these two men do, to change the situation? Nothing. They still lost a child, they still lost their home, they still lost their, everything. But how they saw it, how they looked at it, that was what they changed. They were able to get people to look at it differently. The, one of my favorite um, commentators is the Ben Ishkai. And if you're looking at a piece of Agadita and the Gomorrah, of course, the first stop is the Marshal. But I always look at the Ben Yoda after that. And he says an incredibly interesting thing. He said that the, the words um, for Hashem's name is, of course, Yudke Vovke. In Kabbalistic thought, Hashem created the world from the four basic elements, fire and water, earth and air. And each of the four letters of Hashem's name parallels one of these four elements of creation. The first He stands for Shemaim, air. And the other one stands for He stands, that's the, the H, that's the H. And then there's Horat. Now, what's the nature of a flame? Which points up to Shemaim. The first hay pointed to Shemaim. That's the flame. It goes up to the heavens. But Horat is the way of this world to pull us down. There's gravity here. But here, this world sometimes really pulls you down. But if you can see it like the flame, which points to heaven, it dances and is freed from the, the pull of gravity. Then you see things differently. Here, things happen to us and it really pulls us down. But if we can have the perspective of Shemaim, 
then it's totally different. A very simple example is how many times have you said in your life, or heard people say, at the time I thought it was the worst possible thing that could have happened. Next two words. But now. Now I get the, I understand. Now I see it. But generally we don't see it. We don't have heaven's perspective. Sometimes until very, very later on. Sometimes not at all. But if you can have that perspective, what did these two guys do? They didn't change the situation. They changed how the people saw the situation. And when you see the situation and it's unexpected, what do we say causes laughter? The punchline? It's the unexpected that makes us laugh. You with me? I'll give you an example. Uh, when we moved here uh, 12 years ago, it was to work for an organization. It turned out not to be an organization. Um, and it was a promise of a three-year contract which disappeared after 10 months. And this was a problem. I just hadn't moved from one city to another city. I'd moved continents. I still had to pay the mortgage in my house in England. I was paying a ridiculous amount of money for a garbage flat in Flatbush with horrible landlords. Uh, and suddenly I had no income. This was scary stuff. And I must admit... I was feeling a little bit down, a little bit low. After all, poverty is one of the things, and I'd moved. So I had two factors to make me feel a little bit down. And then I remembered a story, and the story happened to somebody who says that I'm allowed to share the story, um, and it's my son. My oldest son has had uh, some quite large challenges in his life. Um, when he was a boy, 14, he was in a wheelchair for a year, having had major surgery in his legs. Then my late wife, his mother, uh, developed breast cancer and died after five years. And, uh, and that was that. And I remember one day he phoned me and said, Dad, I didn't want to worry you, but... Uh, oh, his, um, his, uh, his, te- his uh, prognosis is that he's a, an expert in in photographing ancient manuscripts. He's got a studio where he photographs ancient manuscripts, which is a very great chokhma because, you know, you can touch the parchment and it evaporates to digitize them so these, these things are not uh, lost. And he phoned me up and he said, Dad, I didn't want to worry, but I've just come back from the doctor and he's confirmed uh, a diagnosis and I'll be totally blind in 10 years' time. Now... When he told me that, I have to tell you that I was um, totally shattered, psychologically. I'm a rabbi, and I, I deal with people and their problems all day long. And I wrote a book about this, as I mentioned before, the little book for big worries, dealing with serious illness. But when your own son phones and tells you this, I was totally shocked. Anyway, a year later, he was in England, and he was there photographing a wedding, and the flight back was meant to be Lufthansa from Manchester to Frankfurt and then from Frankfurt down to Israel. And the very last minute, uh, the flight got cancelled. And so he had to take one of these cheap budget airlines, something called Jet 2, which is the right flight from Manchester to Israel. The only problem is it's horrible. The seats are plastic. What happened to the romance of flying? Plastic, not even padded, it's plastic. Um, and it was all squished and horrible. 
the cup container is basically, I think, just unscrewed from a coat hanger and attached to the seat in front. It was, it was terrible. So he was sitting at the back, not very happy with himself. So he decided to pay a little bit more money to get an extra legroom seat, so they moved him to the front. He sat down there at the front next to some fellow, and the fellow said in a Manchester accent, Hello. And my son said in a Manchester accent, Hello. And the, and the fellow said, Do you live in Manchester or do you live in Israel? My son said, I, I, live, in, I live in Israel. He said, uh, Me too, but you were born in Manchester, no? My son said, No, I was actually, I was actually born in Gateshead. And the fellow said, Gateshead? I studied medicine at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne, which is just across the river from Gateshead. So I know it very well. In fact, he said, I used to st- uh, learn Torah every week with a very well-known rabbi. Have you ever heard of Rabbi Y.Y. Rubenstein? <laughs> and my son said, as a matter of fact, I have heard of it. That's my dad. And so when my son realized he's going to be spending five hours on a flight next to a doctor, free consultation. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> He started to tell him all the problems, the problems he's had with the surgeries in his legs and the other stuff. His mother died from cancer and how that by then, in nine years' time, he's going to be totally blind. And this doctor said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm an eye specialist. And you're wrong. We developed a surgical technique recently in which we put a, a solid lens inside the eye which stops the eye changing its shape, which leads to the blindness. And I'll do that for you. Now, my wife says I have to be very careful what I say next, because I don't want you to think that I've got an ego problem. In fact, I can think of few rabbis in the world, or Jews in the world, who deserve less of an ego problem than me. But it would be fair, and it would be honest to say, that I have, in the course of my, of my life, had the great privilege to teach not just thousands, but tens of thousands of Jews all over the world. Apart from my university students I had every year for 23 years, that was 3,000 per year. So you do the math. I've taught lots and lots of Jews. But this doctor, who's called Andy Fink, was my first ever Talmud. My first ever Talmud. When Project Seed came, was imported from America to the UK, then every Wednesday night... 30 of us used to drive across the bridges from across the River Tyne to learn with the people in the small Jewish community of Newcastle who were not the same as Gateshead. And I learned with this young man. And when I got this terrible news that I'd lost this job, it was the last three, and I was really, and I thought, ah, oh, Rabunjal had forgotten all about me. I remembered this story. Because he'd written down in his little book that I had learnt with this guy uh, an embarrassing 40 years before just when I needed to call on that. So he cancels a flight so that my son's on the plane to be sitting next to this guy who did the operation on my son so that he'll never go blind. How do you think I reacted when I found that the, the doctor who was going to save my son's sight was my first ever Talmud? I laughed. And then I cried. But I laughed because it was the unexpected. You so see, clearly see what Hashem's up to. When you see it from Shemayim's point of view, you laugh. Well, then you cry as well. Look, we all go through tough times. That's a given. But I think what the Jewish people did very, very well 
uh, throughout our history. Um, in fact, there's a movie called Fiddler on the Roof. I think I saw this in my parents' house when I was about nine. I can't remember very much about it, but I remember there's a famous song in it called, called If I Was a Rich Man, doidi 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 doi. And there's a line in it which goes something, and if I was a rich man, people would come and ask my, me for advice all day long, something like that. I think part of the genius of Colin Strong has been that maybe from Avram Avinu, who asked advice about how to do Bris Mila, maybe from the get-go, we've known that it's a good idea to turn to other people for help and advice. And because we are blessed to be Jews and members of Cloud and Stroll, particularly members of this element of Cloud and Stroll, those who know a little bit, you always find somebody who's willing to help you. Always find somebody who's willing to help you. Look, if you climb Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world, as we said earlier in one of my sharing, um, normally you need to have a team of supporters to get you there. They carry this stuff up. Do you know what they're called? Sherpas. Sherpas. I like that name. It sounds like the Yiddish word schleppers, um, <laughs> which is precisely what they do. Do you have any idea how many constitute a team to get one guy to the top of Everest? How many Sherpas you need? 50. 50. 10 make a base camp. And then you go with the remaining 40 to the next stage, and then another 10 stay there. And then the next 30, and then 20, and then 10, and eventually you get to the top. The higher the mountain you have to climb, the more help you need to get up and down again. And because we are brilliant at asking for advice, and because we have it available, there will be. And never try and climb a mountain on your own. That's insanity. When life throws an Everest in your path, make sure you've got people who are going to help you. Your Rob, your Rebitson, whoever it is, whatever the advice is going to be appropriate for you in your circumstance, get advice. Because in Clallestral, there's always somebody who will tell you how to get to the top and how to get down the other side and how to laugh along the way as well. You should all have a year full of brocha and laughter. Sure.